0: The end of the pandemic is the start of a perfect storm for surgical overutilization. Patients who postpone surgeries are having them now. Other patients got sicker or fatter during the lockdowns, and surgeons are looking to recoup their losses by doing more cutting. Today's guest, Dr. Randy Hawkins, is here to discuss what his company, Carem Health, is doing to eliminate unneeded surgeries and offer written guarantees on the necessary procedures that are performed in their centers of excellence. He's also here to share the tale of how he relieved his brother as a medical officer in the U.S. Navy during the Gulf War, and why Karam's chief operating officer, who didn't serve, gave him a book on naval leadership. I'm David Williams, host of the Health Biz Podcast and president of Health Business Group. Enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Randy Hawkins, Chief Medical Officer of Karam Health, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast.
1: David, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You know, Randy, Karam Health is very interesting, and we're going to talk plenty about that. But your upbringing and your background and your career is also fascinating. So I'm going to spend some time, if you don't mind, uh, delving into that. Now, I promise it won't be too personal, but I'd uh, <laughs> love to hear about what's what. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. What was your childhood like and, uh, you know, any early influences that have uh, stuck with you?
1: Uh, Fantastic. i love to uh, share what I can with you. No one's ever asked me on a podcast before about my background and upbringing, but I was uh, born and raised in a small town in north central Connecticut. Um, My father was an operating engineer of heavy equipment and construction, and my mom was an elementary school teacher for 38 years. Older brother, younger sister, very close-knit family, and my influences uh, were just that. They were of my parents. We, did, we didn't have a lot, David, you know, but everything we did have, uh, my parents gave to us, the children, and really afforded us with the opportunity um, to do what it is we have in life.
0: Now, that's great. You know, um, I saw that in from an early career standpoint, you you, uh, you were in the military, managed to get there, I think, just before uh, Operation Desert Storm and played a role over there. Love to, love to hear about that, especially sort of the combination of the, the military and the medical uh, practice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting. My brother and I were both medical officers in the United States Navy. We got health professional scholarships from the Navy to. Uh, we both attended Georgetown University School of Medicine in Washington D.C. at the same time, and uh, the Navy paid for it. Uh, part and parcel with that deal is you got to do what they tell you to do when you finish. Yeah. And each of us, each of us, um, had the opportunity to serve over in the Middle East, and it was so close. My brother's two years older than me. David, Um, he went over to the Persian Gulf uh, during Operation Desert Shield, and I was finishing my general surgery internship, and I relieved him on his ship at sea in the Persian Gulf in, I don't even remember when it was, a long time ago. Yeah, And uh, it was, I served over there during Desert Storm, and uh, had an enjoyable time doing it. It I learned a lot, I grew a lot, um, and then came back to the United States after the war, and served as an admiral's position in Newport, Rhode Island, to finish my naval. Growth. Now,
0: do you, do you, does your brother look like you? Any
1: confusion? Um, he's taller. Okay. Um, many, many would say significantly better looking. <laughs> uh, but you know, it was. Uh, there's no doubt uh, that we are siblings. Got Let's it. put it that way.
0: Well, my brothers. I'm, I'm the older brother. My younger brothers are identical twins, and one of them is a physician, and he's actually is in the National Health Service Corps, so sort of a similar concept. Wow. And, uh, and his identical twin moved up near the town where he was living and people would pass him on the street and they said you know hey you were rude to me you know because they thought they didn't realize they were seeing the twin so luckily they didn't ask him to perform any surgery he's more of a like a librarian and a farmer so <laughs> but uh it's interesting to uh to to hear about that now that's terrific and then you also had some corporate experience one i saw was a patient keeper and my my uh uh, my business school classmate uh, and friend, actually Paul Bryant, uh, was a Patient Keeper, and I assume that you knew knew him and uh, and worked with him along there.
1: Knew Paul very well, a great man. He was the CEO during my entire tenure at Patient Keeper. It was back, David, during the ARA High Tech Meaningful Use, trying to get you know affinity and adoption for healthcare information technology uh, uh, connected with physicians, and that's what we were doing with computerized physician order entry, um, rec- medication reconciliation. Uh, products and things of that nature. And Paul and I had a really good run, really enjoyed it.
0: Now, I remember when Paul, we, we went to business school together, and then we actually worked at Boston Consulting Group uh, together for a while. And I remember when he went to Patient Keeper, you know, was to be an an executive, but he also was a sort of a hardcore coder at heart. And I think he went in there and actually like rewrote a lot of the code himself as the CEO, which is, I guess, sometimes you do, but not always.
1: I, I learned that walking in the building. That's what, that's what they told me. That was exactly his MO. He, he really enjoyed you know the x's and o's the dots and bytes and uh, really participated in everything we did over there at patient keeper
0: what about uh, consumer medical that's not a company that i'm familiar with but you played a role there as well
1: yeah i was um the chief medical officer and executive vice president of health analytics at consumer medical for four years uh, directly before coming to CAREM health consumer medical 25 year old company um very well suited in the health navigation, expert medical opinion, second opinion space, um, really advocating and getting patients off the sidelines to participate in their own care, giving them information, giving them some access to tools and really building their experience set in dealing with the healthcare system as healthcare consumers. Awesome company, uh, great run there as well.
0: That's good. Now, Carum Health, um, I want to now spend some time speaking about that. Now, first of all, it's, sort of an, it's kind of an unusual name. Does it have any particular background? You know, C-A-R-R-U-M. It's not, uh, not something I've been familiar with. It sounds like somebody's name or like a carom, like on a billiards table or something.
1: Yeah, I, I think it just is rooted in the whole notion of care and revolutionizing the way the healthcare system is set up in this country. You know, the Triple A Initiative is what we strive for here at Carum Health. And really changing uh, the level of quality of the care provided, uh, the cost and responsible cost associated with that care, and obviously building highly upon the member experience, which everybody expects in the market today.
0: Got it. I, somehow I guess I missed care, the care part of that because I didn't see the E, but now that you say it, it's of course kind of obvious. So, uh, so that's good. So, so big picture, what, like what's, the, what's the big picture need that CAREM serves to uh, address?
1: If you were to ask us, David, I think anybody in the building would tell you that it is a genuine health care reform, you know, changing that triad um, for the better. We, we believe that uh, appropriate care needs to be provided, then high level of care, and then responsible cost. So the opportunity um, also represents the challenge because we're trying to stand the existing fee-for-service model um, on its ear and change the way we deliver health care, we reimburse it, and we experience it, as healthcare consumers. So that's the need.
0: You know, so there's a, it's a big picture, uh, kind of an item, you know, if you think about you, you're kind of responsible for healthcare reform, you know, to do it within, within one company. And I think even as, uh, you know, the Titans that, uh, that tried to put Haven together, uh, discovered between, you know, JP Morgan and, right. uh, you know, and Amazon and, uh, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, that they, they couldn't really handle it as something sort of the federal government needs to do. And of course, they, they're not going to do it on an individual patient basis. But I mean, do you have a, a shot at it? What's the, what's the approach that you that you take to make that practical? Uh,
1: the approach that we're taking is to be transparent in our quality evaluation and assessment. Let's, let's talk about that. You know, that was my experience at Consumer Medical, of aggregating data, buying data, building proprietary algorithms so that we could sit at the table nationally and agree upon, standardize to some degree, the approach we take to quality. The other thing that's part and parcel to what we do, David, which is uh, important, is this whole payment reform. We have direct bundled contracts with the best of the best. We're not a, just aligning with brick and mortar facilities, but the individual providers therein, selecting the best of the best everywhere we look finding quality wherever it is, and then entering into direct contracts with them such that there are transparent, prospective bundles for all the procedures that are performed on our platform. That's really necessary. And finally, the the notion of engaging with these consumers. It's a great benefit, but we've got to get folks to take advantage of what we have to offer. And we do it in a very meaningful way, and our net promoter scores and our – Assessments of the solution by employers and patients really support the notion that we're onto something here.
0: So, Randy, who is a customer? Like, let's take it from the employer standpoint. Like, if I, if I were an employer, what what would be a typical profile, and who's the individual that you're dealing with? What's their what's their title? What's the what's the pitch to them?
1: Yeah, great question, David. Um, the large employer groups that we serve, in general, are north of five to 10,000 employees. They're of that size, of that ilk. We interact primarily uh, through the benefit leadership in these organizations. We become part of their benefit ecosystem, a a real trusted partner that integrates in three specific ways, workflow and people, number one, technology through our platform, and then the whole notion of we have preferred agreements with folks where we have um, streamlined contracting uh, arrangements uh, on our paper, on their paper, and everything in between. So that's who we deal with, and we're really finding great affinity from the um, progressive folks among us, those who think outside of the traditional forms of healthcare delivery and payment.
0: So let's say I have an, a, a company of seven or eight thousand employees, which I, by the way, I don't. But uh, let's say <laughs> if, I, if I did and i've uh, been working with with Carem health for for a couple of years and i'm reviewing like how it's gone like what would i see as some successes you know that i would point to and 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 what are some of the challenges
1: yeah the the successes would be um dramatic increases in quality and reduction in cost uh supported by the data you, we, you would see uh the care delivered to your folks at these top tier facilities and the top surgeons therein uh with fewer complications 80% reduction in uh, complications and readmissions you'd see avoided unnecessary surgeries at a, at a rate of 30% and you would see these unbelievable per procedure cost savings of around 45 to
0: 50% so you know it's interesting if i if i look across the the lines of business or the different uh, different areas that you deal with these are obviously the high priority ones for an employer musculoskeletal cardiology cancer bariatric uh, you know these are a big a big deal and it's interesting what you just said about kind of avoidance of surgery because on the one hand you know I think a lot of times people go into it with the assumption we're just going to do it better or cheaper but a lot of times the answer I know somebody who has you know back pain they'll say just you, if you think you can you can solve this you know I'm, I'm in I'm into it but not only that they might go and they might do physical therapy for a while they run out of their physical therapy benefit then they go and have an extensive procedure of course then they need more physical therapy after that. How do you kind of break that that cycle with what you do
1: yeah great question and you're absolutely right Um, the notion of appropriateness um, has connotation and avoidance has connotation some of it good maybe some of it not so good here's the way we think about it david the uh, the necessary surgeries um, need to happen but not every surgery needs to happen to the full extent of for example total joint replacement are there lesser invasive procedures that can be performed that are equally effective, less costly, and less cumbersome as it relates to rehabilitation? The other thing is the timing of these high-intensity interventions. Let's say you're like us, you're young and you're healthy. Um, Is it really the right thing if the MRI shows radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease? At a young age, is it really right, even though the x-ray says, to replace that joint? The answer is no. And one of the reasons is the timing, because at these young ages, these total joint replacements are going to wear out, and you're going to have to have them revised. Let's get you to a point where we're not setting you up for multiple high-intensity interventions. These are all the questions that we ask to break the cycle of let's just rush to surgery, and then we'll figure it out on the back end.
0: I, I've seen people that have had you know knee and and, and hip replacements and other you know, procedures there, and they've generally have worked out okay, but I think what you're saying uh, makes good sense. There's the other element, of course, that some of the technology for some of those implants and some of the surgical techniques is improving too. So if you can wait 10 years, you might actually get not just not need to have a, a revision because you're older, but maybe what you get is your original equipment is going to be better too.
1: right. and we we look to our providers, the folks that we invite to join the care platform, to be those folks who do two things for us, of their own accord, of their own volition, they will do the right thing at the right time for each individual patient. But here's another thing we do, David, is every surgeon that comes onto the CareM platform has to commit to a minimum 30-day warranty for all the procedures that they perform on our platform. And what that does is it aligns their incentives for patient selection, doing the right thing on the right time. because they are on the hook for complications and readmissions associated with the procedures they perform
0: now do they mind first of all that's a very i, I was i was when i was uh, studying up on the company i think it was april 1st and i thought that was maybe an april fool's day joke you had a warranty for a medical uh, <laughs> a medical pr- procedure but i saw it there on the second as well so i assume it's for real
1: yeah it is a it's a real um industry first nobody else is doing it where they they get the physicians to sign up and commit to these warranties And they abide by these warranties. In contractual language, it is spelled out clearly what are deemed complications that are um, covered under these warranties. Because we're doing the right thing and selecting the right providers, we don't have warranty claims. This is not a a thing that we worry about. It's a belt and suspenders approach to getting the right people on our platform.
0: Talk about, if you don't mind, some of the differences across these the different categories between the musculoskeletal, which I'm, I'm understanding about, okay, postpone a knee surgery and so on. But how is it different from, you know, cancer on the one hand, or cardiology or bariatric surgery? Is, there, is does your general approach work across all of these, or how, how does it? How is it modified depending on what you're dealing with?
1: That's another great question because the the simple answer is uh, they're very alike in some ways, and obviously very different in others. The way they're similar is as you would imagine. We deal with episodes of care, those things that can be defined by a start and an end. And that allows us to enter into bundled payment contracts with our providers. So they're, they're all similar in that regard. If it's not a service line that lends itself to an episode of care, that makes it more difficult. The differences, David, are as wide and varied as you may imagine. Age cohorts of total joint replacement, and, you know, some cardiology surgeries and things of that nature are for the, uh, the older folks among us. But the younger folks are covered in everything from cancer, unfortunately, to the sports medicine components or the outpatient orthopedic surgery components of our bundles with ankle surgery, elbows, things that are sports injury related. And then we're into new and creative and innovative service lines that are on our roadmap with maternity for the younger population among us and other things in general surgery and behavioral health. So the differences allow for us uh, to tweak the model in support of these individual service lines. Things have different urgencies. Some are separate, semi-elective, preference-sensitive type procedures like total joint. Others are immediate like cancer care.
0: During the pandemic, one of the things that uh, happened to hospitals is that a lot of the so-called elective procedures they had to, they had to cancel uh, because of the pandemic. And these are some of the same categories that you're, that you're working in uh, here. Not everything like cancer is different. Um, what has the experience been like during the pandemic and anything that, you know, assuming that we eventually get beyond the pandemic, anything that will be kind of a permanent change based on what you did or is a sort of snap back to, you know, pre-pandemic
1: practices? Two, um, two answers to that question, David. Um, what we saw is what most folks saw, which is a downturn in elective procedures, those semi-elective, preference-sensitive things that I was describing. Unfortunately, even the avoidance of necessary things like cancer screening, monitoring, and care, uh, they took a downturn. We saw that in our business as well. As you would well imagine, uh, the whiplash, the coming out of COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, is doing two things. We are seeing a genuine um, whiplash effect in the upturn in the case volumes that we're seeing because elective surgery is back on the schedule, people are more willing to go to the hospital. But the other thing that we're seeing, which is undeniable, is the market receptivity for preparing through centers of excellence and bundle payment strategies like Carem Health for this onslaught of the backlog of surgeries um, that didn't get done during the pandemic. Large employer groups are reaching into us and saying, In order to prepare for what's ahead, we really want to control our quality and cost initiatives, and CAREM is the way to do it.
0: You know, the musculoskeletal ones in particular, there is a lot of uh, overuse that is widely acknowledged and that you're addressing. And I think sometimes what happens is, as we were talking before about how, you know, someone just got this pain, make it go away, I'll, I'll do the surgery. And thinking during the pandemic that that didn't happen, do you have a sense or even any numbers about whether people that, you know, whether the... Unnecessary surgeries were actually that were avoided temporarily, where they avoided permanently. In other words, like somebody waited six months and, like, okay, actually I don't need surgery; it resolved on its own. Or even just the idea that uh, avoiding a surgery is not the same as kind of rationing of care. Does it does it change anything about how people think about these surgeries?
1: It really does. It, It it makes them reassess, if you will, their current state and current condition, and having. Uh, they have new and informed conversations with their, their providers. But three things that we notice um, about the healthcare consumer now um, that are again undeniable is the pandemic did three specific things. It delays, so we have a backlog. We have a large increase in the number of surgeries that need to be performed. Unfortunately, because of delays in care and unwillingness to go to the hospital, few if any people got healthier during the pandemic such that their risk profile stayed the same for these procedures that they're looking for ha- to have. So we have a larger number of sicker patients to deal with. And the other thing which folks sometimes lose sight of is, remember in the fee-for-service model of healthcare delivery, surgeons in hospitals took it on the chin as it related to their top line, their revenue. They are actually, through no fault of their own, looking to restart this engine of doing surgery to recoup some of those losses and you see it play out in the uh, interesting dynamic of uh, practices outreaching to patients saying, you know, we have open spots in the, the operating room schedule based upon the now reopening yeah. of the hospital. If you were going to have surgery, why don't we go ahead and schedule that and get that done? Yeah. All those factors are working to increasing healthcare cost in no uncertain terms.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, I, I actually saw this. I, I would expect that like in, uh, you know, let's say San Diego for uh, for back surgeries, but um, I actually saw something from our pediatrician's office in Boston, which was an outreach on the portal uh, for uh, acne consultations. Um, which, yeah, they could have an acne consultation, but I, I really thought it was a little bit over the line in terms of marketing. Uh,
1: yeah, I gotta be—I gotta be honest with you. I've never seen that one. before. Yeah. that is an—it that is an interesting one. Yeah. Well,
0: we have a you know high end. Practice that's affiliated with all the right right places. So that was some somebody's idea, I guess, of uh, yeah. what to do here. Maybe <laughs> that was the April Fool's joke. I don't know. Um, Perhaps. So let me just ask you: you've hinted at it a little bit in terms of what's coming next. It sounds like you're expanding beyond uh, the, the uh, you know the areas that you, that you've been covering so far. What what's next? If you look over the next uh, couple of years, you know where where is Caram Health headed?
1: Um, as you alluded to, and as you might expect. Breath and depth expansion is what I call it, David. And what I mean by that, it's obviously uh, bringing in more service lines to cover more conditions, adding more bundles to the hundreds that we already have. Those are necessary and important to us, but it's also uh, the depth of our expansion that's important. Take cancer care, for example. Uh, we have multiple important steps in the cancer journey covered, early detection, guidance for any and all cancers, any and all organ systems, and treatment bundles, the industry's first treatment bundles for first-time breast cancer, thyroid cancer, and colorectal cancer. The point is we need to dive even more deeply into the treatment bundle area and provide these fully packaged bundles for more areas of cancer care. So we want to go deeper, and we want to go broad. And the last thing, David, is I see CAREM's network growing even further than it already has. 90% 90% of the US population is within driving distance of a carem Center of Excellence. I never want to generate pins on a map. So you can look outside your window and say, oh yeah, there's a carem Center of Excellence. That's not our approach. But I do want to find the highest quality providers everywhere they are. So we want to expand our network even farther.
0: Randy, for the last question, I want to go back to more of the personal side of things and ask if you've had a time, a chance to do any uh, reading and if there's any books you would recommend or, any books you recommend we stay away from? It's like avoidable, <laughs> yeah, a avoidable reading, right? It's sort of like, you know, some surgeries are unnecessary and some books are <laughs> unnecessary to read.
1: Interesting. Um, I can give a nod to a good friend and colleague of mine, Dan Nardi, who's the chief operating officer at Caram Health. He turned me on to a book um, some time ago, maybe, maybe a handful of months ago, um, called Turn the Ship Around, written by a retired Navy captain of a nuclear submarine, talking about changing the dynamic in the United States Navy. Uh, from leaders uh, creating followers to leaders creating leaders. And Dan shared it with me. He had read it. I've since read it. It's an absolute playbook on how to get this right, to empower folks, even in the most critical decisions at war and in, you know, hundreds of people in a nuclear submarine beneath the sea, changing the way people think about how it is they do their job. So that's a great book. I highly recommend for anyone uh, in a leadership position or aspiring uh, to grow into a leadership position, that's a great book to read. The only other thing I would say, David, as for reading, I am a massive fan of the literary period back in the day of Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I read and reread. And if there's only one book I can ever read again for the rest of my life, it's The Sun Also Rises from Ernest Hemingway.
0: Very nice. Now, does Dan have a naval background, or he just decided a naval book would be good and he'd hand it to you as an old Navy, Navy man yourself?
1: Yeah, he, he doesn't have a Navy background. I think it was two parts, you know, because he appreciated mine coming yeah. into the company. I joined the company last year and I probably no small part. He probably thinks I'm an idiot and I need to read the book.
0: <laughs> there you go. Listen, whatever it, it takes to, uh, to lead the company effectively is great. Well, Dr. Randy Hawkins, CMO, Chief Medical Officer of Caram Health. I want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, David. love to join you anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.